Hi everybody and welcome to another edition of the WFI Scouting Podcast. Uh, we sort of missed last week uh, unforeseen circumstances, uncontrollable circumstances, apologies for that. But we could have a bumper edition for you, I think, this week, which may end up being a two-parter or may not. We'll, we'll see how we go. As always, I'm joined uh, by my co-host for this particular pod in the form of Lee Scott. Lee, how are you? A couple of weeks since I've spoken to you. All well with you? Uh, all is good, Dave. Yeah, football season up here in Scotland started last weekend, so so it's kind of a, a busy few days just past. Looking forward to next weekend for, for the, the Premiership season getting going and hopefully the rest of European football going. So, exciting times. Ah, I know. It's great to have it back. You know, I still have Brazilian football to, to fill the void, but it's just not the same. You know, I can't, I can't wait for the EPL to kick off. Leagues around Europe make such a difference. I definitely. Well, listen, I think today we're, 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 we're going to try and take a look at so, sort of four different models um, around Europe with, with clubs. And we're going to start off today with Monaco, a team who... who I think did very very well last season and, and that showed a, a wonderful array of youth and, and very very good recruitment. Lee, so you know, on that line, you know, what do you consider to be you know their recruitment strategy? Do, do they even have one? Have they just been lucky? What's your feelings on it? I think uh, Monaco are a really interesting case. Like you said, last season especially, they they kind of came to to everyone's attention not just because they got so far in the Champions League before. You know, unfortunately, being being knocked out. But the style, the style was magnificent. The style, the style's key. I mean, the the way they were playing, the attacking football they were playing, and that wasn't something really that I'd seen before under their coach, Leonardo Jardim, the Portuguese coach. I'd always seen him more of a, you know, a, a almost a Mourinho esque coach kind of defence first, but all that seemed to to go by on the back burner last season, and they were a joy to watch going forwards, but. I think that as well as doing really well in Europe, you, you've got to point to the fact that they, they came away League One League One champions. They they beat PSG to the league title and that's despite the spending power of PSG and, and Monaco, you know, all due respect to Monaco, they they have a fraction of that, not just in terms of, you know, the the backing of the owners, but if you look at the the amount of money they make from things like gate receipts and things like that, they they really don't have the, the financial strengths that PSG do. So so when you talk about their their model, their recruitment model, it's it's more. I think it's one of the more intelligent ones in European football, which is why kind of we're kicking off the show talking about Monaco, I guess. But the fact that a few years ago that they were bankrolled, they're still bankrolled by the same person, um, one of the the Russian oligarchs. His name slips my mind, but he's he's basically a, a Roman Abramovich esque owner that they have. And and initially when he took over the club, the plan was to almost become the Chelsea of French football, you know, they, they went out, they, they went straight across to, to Portugal, to Porto, and they signed people like uh, Yao Moutinho, they signed uh, Radamel Falcao, and of course they signed the, the Colombian lad from your neck of the woods, James Rodriguez, and all of those were big, big money signings. That was all very well while the backing was there, but unfortunately for this Russian owner, his, his, um, his marriage broke down and Ended in quite a costly divorce, I believe. So they've kind of remodelled themselves from that, from from that big spending, big money, big purchasing. All of that went out of the window, and they took a step back and they started to to really think about what they were doing in terms of the recruitment strategy. And they they kind of went down the route of recruiting people who still had a high profile, but they were also young enough 
that they they felt that they could be developed to the point where they'd be able to to play in the Monaco first team. They'd be good enough for Liga for the championship there. They'd be good enough for European football to an extent. But then, most importantly, they they're targeting players that they think have got significant resale value, so they can they can recoup quite a lot of the money that they spend on these players by by developing them and then selling them on down the line. So. The, the way that they've been going through players this summer, it's it's kind of been a busy one for them. And it's going to be interesting to see if they're finished with their spending, if they're finished with their, well, if they're finished with their the recruitment coming in, as it were, but whether they're finished with the recruitment going out as well. Because you think about Kylian Mbappe and you think about Thomas Lamar and whether they can keep hold of those two, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a kind of stressful last few weeks of the transfer window for a lot of Monaco fans. Yeah, and and you know, look, my own club's in, in, in somewhat of a similar situation. You know, it's okay, okay buying, but it's, it's protecting your assets as well. And and given the fact that Mbappe and Lamar were were such standouts for them last season, Monaco are a fine club. No, no disrespect to them, you know, but they play on top of a car park. You, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's you pretty know, much the case. Yeah, you know, and, and and we can't get away from that. And and you know, why why that's a bit humorous or whatever. You know, no disrespect to them. You know, if the big clubs come calling, and we've seen, you know, the Real Madrids, the Barcelonas of this world, the Manchester Uniteds, the Manchester Cities, can they resist? Um, you know, the, these big offers from the big clubs. You know, these young players obviously have ambitions to 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 perform at the highest level and the highest teams. Can the Monaco hold on to these two? I think that's the that's kind of the hundred and fifty million dollar question. If you talk about Kylian Mbappe at the moment, that that's kind of the price that you're being quoted for him. But if you look at the, the players that Monaco have already lost this summer, they've got Benjamin Mondi who has gone to Man City, and that's fifty fifty million, fifty five million euros. Let's say Bernardo Silva also at Man City for forty five million euros. They've got Timio Bakayoko. Bakayoko has gone to Chelsea. And that that's another big money money deal. So that's that's say over 120 million straight into the club coffers. So that's a lot of money to sit there for a club like Monaco when they've only really spent a fraction of that. And I mean, some of the signings they've made have been very intelligent. Again, like um, one of one of my favourite players in Europe who wasn't playing in one of the top leagues last season is the the Belgian international Yuri Tielemans. The, the central midfielder that they've taken from Anderlecht, and that's their biggest purchase so far this season. I think the fee was reported at about 22, 23 million. So not huge in comparison to what they're, they're taking into the club in terms of their sales. So there's a surplus of cash at the moment in that club. Lee, what, why was why was Taylorman so? Because he was touted, I think, the last two or three years, he was he was touted as the next big thing coming through, and uh, you know, and and I think Ruben Neves as well as another another one that we could we could cite. You know, these these ones who were touted to be the big players, and and they, we've seen them go this season maybe for for an awful lot less than what we would have imagined maybe two seasons ago. Yeah, definitely. I think that with Neves, you've got to question the the agent the agent's interest there when he's gone to Wolves. I think it's it's quite heavily driven by his agent and what his agent his agent's relationship with the club there. So I think the the fee is almost a part of that deal in terms of you know they they'll sign him for a relative pittance for for the kind of player that Neves is. But you've got to remember as well that Neves was barely getting a game reporter last season. So as highly as he's been rated, and he's still, you know, I think he's the youngest Porto player to, to, to captain his team in the Champions League, the youngest Porto player to score in the Champions League. 
he's a Porto fan, he was a Porto social growing up and he really should have been the lifeblood of that team. But for some reason last season, it just wasn't clicking for him. So so part of the, the low fee for that deal, I think, is is based around the increased exposure he'll get from England and, and the belief that he'll kick on and be sold on by Wolves for, for a huge profit next season. Obviously, that would benefit the agent. In terms of Yuri Tielemans, I think that what we're seeing is a very smart young boy, to be honest with you. I think um, it, not dissimilar. There seems to be something about Anderlecht. I mean, they, they've always developed players really well, but they develop intelligent players as well. Um, I, it's a club I'd quite like to go and visit to get a bit more information about the kind of the way that they the way that they run and the way that they do things. If you think of the likes of um, Vincent Company and Romelu Lukaku, they both come through the Anderlecht system and both are actually very well educated. They, they, they both speak multiple languages. They, they're well-read and they're well-rounded individuals as well as good footballers. And I think Tielemans comes kind of on that on that kind of the, the same plane as those two. He's, he's had a look at his options, obviously, and he's taken a very intelligent step, in my opinion, to move to a club which had a lot of exposure around European media last season, world media. He'll get he'll play in the spotlight in, in France. He'll play for a team that, that everybody's going to be looking at this season. And I think that from the way that he started the first couple of games that he's played this season, he's, he's already looking like possibly the best player in that team which is interesting, and they still have Kylian Mbappe, they still have Radabel Falcao, they still have Thomas Lamar, and Tielemans kind of looks head and shoulders above at the moment. So I don't think, I think this is just kind of a stepping stone move for Tielemans more than anything else. You, know, the, the, you talk about the new players, uh, you know, which of the new players that, that they have can you see sort of being sort of key for them this season to step it up, maybe, uh, you know, into the shoes of the ones that have gone? Well, in terms of it's quite interesting. Something that Monaco do really well is the the succession plan for their for their transfers coming up. So I think they they, they knew that they were going to lose Mondi after his performances from left back. He was he was absolutely astounding. For for my money, he was other than Marcelo at Real Madrid, who I think is still head and shoulders above anybody else in terms of fullbacks. I think he was the best left back after Marcelo in European football last season. So. It's no surprise to see him go, but you've got to remember that he was only signed last season. He signed at the start of last season from Marseille for Monaco for about, something about ten million, I think. So the the price wasn't that that large that they paid for him. They they've had him for one season. His output has been magnificent, and then they've made a massive profit on him. But at the same time, halfway through last season, they went out and signed the left back Georges from Flamengo, somebody who you might know quite well, Dave. I don't know an awful lot about him. I've I've seen bits and pieces. But he was kind of signed to play left back uh, as a as part of the plan for Monty moving on. So straight away they have somebody stepping into his boots. They've also taken a couple of others. Obviously Tielemans, as we've already spoken about, but Terence Congolo, who's a Dutch international defender, he can only play centre half or left back, and he signed for Feyenoord as well. He's another basically a, a Monty clone. I think he's he's big, powerful, quick. Not quite as good in the attacking phase as Monty is. He, he's more of a, a defensive fullback than an attacking fullback. But he's certainly somebody that they can look to develop and sell on in the future. But I think that, that the player that I'm most excited about seeing, the player that I think that Monaco fans are most excited about seeing, is the, the young lad that they managed to take from Barcelona at the start of the season. Uh, it's a young winger called Jordi Mbula. 
he, he never made an impact in the Barcelona first team, never really got close to it. But in the under-19 European Youth Championship last season, the, the Champions League for under-19 sides, he was head and shoulders over MD in the Barcelona team. He's a really quick, direct, pacey winger. With he, he can pass, he can assist, he can score. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how they can they can make use of him going into next season. But again, he's he's come in and he's going to be you know a, a relative bargain for the club before they look to sell him on in a couple of years, maybe even back to Barcelona for a huge profit. So they're definitely still going to be an interesting team to watch. Yeah, and you know, I think domestic. You know, they're they're fighting on the two fronts. They've done it last season. They've shown how how well they can they can you know balance the campaign between domestically and Europe. But you know, PSG this year have uh, have broke the bank. It's like they've broke the bank of football with Neymar. That's huge. I I have my own thoughts on that one, Lee. Um, you know, I, I've seen Neymar be the man as he talks about for the Brazilian national team, and and it doesn't mm-hmm. end well. And I think from a Monaco point of view, I'd maybe look at that and go, well, you know, they spend all this money. Don't get me wrong. Neymar's a fantastic footballer if he applies himself in the right way and he has the right person um, advising him. Um, you know, I, I could say Cheech here for the, the national team in Brazil seems yeah. to have his, his feet very, very firmly on the ground for the national team now, whereas beforehand with Dunga, he was he was everywhere, you know. Like I've been to games, saw him, you know, Coming, coming to the edge of his own box to collect the ball. Uh, it's not where you want to see Neymar, you know. And that's when <laughs> you that's when you let Neymar be the man. And that's where I would, you know, I, I think Monaco might still be be in with a good shot. You know, it is like let's face it, it's not the strongest league in Europe. Um, and these two sort of are head and shoulders above of the the rest at the moment. Can you, can you see domestically? It's just the same two fighting it out. I think I think it could well be. I mean. Uh, You've got to think, league guys. It's quite an interesting league just now, and it's going to get obviously the Neymar deal is. It's kind of shocked the world a little bit that they were they were able to so easily take one of Barcelona's best players and and take him across to France. So it's going to get huge exposure media wise. There's going to be a lot of people watching it this season, but there are actually quite a few exciting teams if you if you look down the list. And Lyon will, will always be, you know, they're another who for a little while back. When they, they were winning title after title after title, they kind of went off the rails a little bit in terms of chasing the dream of European football a bit too hard. There were quite a lot of questionable signings, but they've they've stripped back the basics, as it were, and now they're very much a team that's driven by by their youth academy, and they've got a lot of talented youngsters there that I'm, I'm looking forward to having a look at more in depth this season. And then you've got Nice, who, who managed to put Ajax out of the Champions League last week. They did another side, obviously. They've got Mario Balotelli, who I'm sure is very dear to your heart after his time at Liverpool, Dave. Love him, love him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of love or hate, I think, uh, fans of any club he's been at. It's either one of the two, but there tends to be nothing in between. They've gone out now and they've signed Wesley Schneider this week, so that's another good experience addition in attacking. But they've also signed it. It's quite... This is the deal, that I think, that took me a little bit most by surprise in European football that I've seen so far this season. They've signed a player from Monaco, um, a wide player who Monaco sent out on loan last season. He'd been recalled, and there was a lot of expectation that he was going to kind of kick on and become part of the Monaco first team. He's a, a wide player called Alain Saint-Maxime. He's a very, very tricky. I think some of the statistics that I've seen, he led the he led the French league in take on successful take ons last season. So it's a very eye catching player, really exciting, really good to watch. But I kind of thought that if they were going to sell Thomas Lamar, if you know if the deal was going to go through, I think Arsenal have been 
they're the ones that have been chasing the most often. But even the likes of Manchester City, I think I've seen Juventus linked to Thomas Lamar in the last couple of weeks. I think if they were going to let Thomas Lamar go, I think that Alan Sam Maxime would be the sensible, the, the kind of natural replacement there. So it's really interesting to see him going across to another team in France who's going to be a competitor to Monaco this season. And to, for them to be able to sign him for, I think, I think the PE that's been reported is under 10 million. So really in this market and, and for Monaco in terms of the sales that they're, they're putting through at the moment, it's not a huge amount. But with him going to, to a team like you know like Nice, who've already got Balotelli, who've already got you now Wesley Schneider, they've got a, a fantastic midfielder called Jean Michel Seri, an Ivory Coast international, just a, a diminutive you know box to box midfielder. But he is really really good. He's another that's been really strongly heavily linked to the likes of Arsenal and Tottenham this summer. Um, I think they'll do very well to keep a hold of him this season. But I think if they do, this will be his last season in France. You look at the output that he has in terms of his the amount of times that he wins possession back for his team, the amount of times he recovers the ball, the amount of times that he he's the one who's driving the play forward, he's the one who's looking to pass beyond the defensive lines, he's the one that's able to burst through the opposition box. He kind of does a little bit of everything. He's a he's a fantastic player. He's, he's kind of I, I thought that he would be going to to a much bigger team this season. I I wrote a report on him for Eat Sleep Drink Football last season. It must have been I wrote it now when the interest was just becoming to firm up from English side. So I'm kind of shocked that he's still there, but it's a sign of the strength of Nice at the moment, the fact that they've got a fantastic tactical coach in Lucien Favre. They've got these players that they've got the the promise about the hope of Champions League football. So the likes of Leon and Nice will certainly be there and there about but then there are other teams like uh, there's a, a few other teams there that, that might make an impact at some point in the French league. But really, with Neymar, you really find it hard to think that anybody's going to win the title ahead of PSG. How's it gone down over there, Dave? When with the Neymar deal, has it been big news? It it was big news to a point. Um, nobody mentioned it until three days beforehand. Um, you know, I did a pod actually yesterday on Phil Coutinho. Um, you know, the, the links to Barcelona here, and again, there was nothing on it. And then all of a sudden, it explodes. And normally, when it explodes here, something happens. But you know, I think Latin Americans, the, the, the stature of Barcelona, Real Madrid, um, you know, those Spanish teams hold, are, have a mythical value. Uh, to South yeah. America, you've reached it. You know, you've reached the pinnacle when you play for one of them, and it's something that can, yeah. no one can ever take away from you. To leave it, I, I think, has left people here very underwhelmed. You know, like seriously, I'm no, and again, no disrespect to PSG, they're they're, they're a big club, but parallel them beside uh, Barcelona, the pale into insignificance, no. and certainly from the Latin perspective, Lee, um, it, that's particularly true. No one, there's people who are just, you know. They, they they love Neymar, but they they're just saying greed, greed, greed. Why would you leave Barcelona? Why would you leave Barcelona? You know, you're playing in the best front three yeah. in the world. Why would you leave that? With, you know, you're at the pinnacle with Messi, with Suarez, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's very see that. there's very few of them that I've spoken to, and very 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 little that I've seen on television that supported. I actually watched Cheech here was interviewed on Sunday, and while you know he was struggling to try and be positive about it, because I think even him from a national team point of view realises that, you know, at Barcelona, uh, Neymar had a very, very structured um, set of sets, way to play, basically, which under Dunga, yep. as, as I mentioned previously, went out the window and he just did what he wanted. And, and Cheech has brought him back in. There seems to be a really good relationship there. 
And I think that Cheech, maybe from from my reading of it, Cheech saw Barcelona as a very, very steadying ship for Neymar. And this is a little bit of worry. But certainly the overriding factor here and the overriding feeling amongst the people I've spoken to is it's just pure greed. Um, and why yeah. would you leave Barcelona? It's it's a lot of money to leave put on the table, I suppose. And part of you can understand a footballer's got a relatively short career and he's trying to maximise his profits. But I saw quite an interesting take on it this week. Somebody pointed out the fact that it's a World Cup year and the fact that Neymar may may well be thinking that he can go to a club like PSG and kind of cruise through some matches at 70% as opposed to being at Barcelona where kind of the expectation levels are that you you'll go out and you'll smash teams left, right and centre. So it's almost like he's he's trying to preserve himself a little bit for the World Cup. But I, I think it's more to do with Ballon d'Or, Lee, to be honest with you, because <laughs> yeah. th- th- that reservation for the World Cup is based along the lines of, I think, his only opportunity at the moment in the next couple of years. I can't see him eclipsing Messi. I can't see him eclipsing nope. Suarez even. So his only yeah. opportunity that's going to open, open up is maybe to take PSG to, um, you know, to the Champions League and or Brazil to win the World Cup, which might just elevate yeah. them that little bit higher. But again, you know, I think that the disappointment here, and there's almost been a turning against him. And you know, you can you can put it down with me living here. Obviously, I can see, you know, you know, he pocketed seventy eight million uh, euro. Like you know, when you when you translate that or convert that into the money here, you know that that is yeah. that, that, that's that's your family set for generations. And the, I think Brazilians. You know, it's, at the end of the day, Brazil is still a pretty poor country. To them, there's a lot of rich people, in, but there's many, many more poor people in it, and they just yeah. look at those figures. And and when you you know when you multiply them by four for the exchange rate, all of a sudden, all of these figures expand into into you know mind blowing amounts. And I think the majority of people here cannot just even equate to that kind of money. Never mind to have it just given to you one day. And and it, it, there is an almost a, a souring of relationships towards him, and and it's it's very very strange because he was the golden boy here. Yes, I remember that well from the World Cup a couple of seasons ago. You, you kind of get the sense that he was the the anointed one for the Brazilian public, wasn't he? He was the one that they all looked up to, and the ones that all the young kids kind of wanted to be when they were older. But you see, unfortunately, now we have the likes of Phil Coutinho, who has his, whose profile in Brazil was zero when I arrived, is now you know Aye. getting up to Neymar levels. Gabi Jesus at Manchester City as well. You know, Brazil's coming back to having they only had the one, which was a rarity for them because historically Brazil yeah. has at least four or five massive names um, to, to go on, and and we're coming back to that again. So Neymar's product is is being diluted a little bit in Brazil, and you have the likes of a Coutinho, you have the likes of a Gabi Jesus. Who are really humble, down to earth kids, and and yeah. you know they come here and they behave. They really do behave. Neymar's the pure party playboy, party boy, and that's what he does. That's fine. He's got the money. Bloody hell, I'd probably do it too. But again, <laughs> what, what, you know, when you're presenting yourself to to a, a very poor population this way and hobnobbing with 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 you know the royalty of of showbiz and whatnot, it it, it begins to grate after a while. It gets a bit old, I think, you know. But listen, I, I, want, I want to go back to Monaco again. I know this is us tangents, you know. Obviously, <laughs> how much of a risk, you know, what they're doing is magnificently, and I think the majority of, of of people that I know, and certainly the guys in WFI, would applaud any club who goes down this sort of development, development. But what we're seeing here is. You know they have one good season and they're stripped bare, and you're starting again nearly from scratch. You're the, near the core of your team's going. You know, is that something that Monaco have factored into this? The fact that you know if we have a good season, we're going to get stripped bare by the big boys and we we'll start again. You know, they talk about risk and paying for you know two hundred twenty-two million for Neymar. It is a risk, 
Um, you know, he, 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 you don't know what you're going, you don't know what his career is going to be there. Uh, it's unwritten, but it's the same again for buying youth players, albeit the price is an awful lot less, but your success or, or failure hinges upon, uh, these young players, uh, developing the way that you imagine them to. Is that a factor a club like Monaco are going to put into their business plan? I think so. Um, again, to an extent, that would be the case. But if you look, the most important thing that, that Monaco have is that they've retained kind of their core. So, well, like I said, Mon- Mondi, Bernardo Silva. Bernardo Silva, I think, is possibly the, the biggest loss to them because he was such a huge part of the their attacking system last season. So to have him move was a blow. But if you look at what they've got, they, they've still got the, the Polish centre-back, Gamil Gilk, who they took last season from Torino. They've still got Jemerson, the Brazilian, who partners him most often. Then in midfield, they've still got Yamatinho, who's the Portuguese international. He's he's getting a little bit older now. I think he's 31, 32 now, but he's still a very influential player in that squad. And perhaps most importantly, they've managed to keep hold of Radimil Falcao um, in attack. So there you have a group of experienced players up the spine of the team. Now, when you've got that, I think you can kind of take a little bit of a risk with some younger players kind of bleat taking them into the squad at early stage in the season and just just kind of seeing how they bed in because as you say with with any young player with any player coming into a new club or coming through into the first team from a youth system there's absolutely no guarantees in football a, a player who you think is absolutely nailed on to to be a huge success could come in and find the pressure's too much for him and then he'll fall by the wayside a player who who you think will be a huge success may come in and suffer a significant injury in the first couple of weeks and that's him knocked back and his confidence is never the same again. So I think that the important thing is that they, they kind of retain that that core. So if the likes of Kylian Mbappe, I mean, bear in mind, this is still a kid that we're talking about with Mbappe, but if he does leave to the likes of Real Madrid or I think PSG or another one, PSG apparently, are claiming that they, they still have the funds with financial fair play to, to go out and sign uh, an Mbappe. Just so high, high, how possibly can it's, they? <laughs> it's a farce. It's, and I, I know it's it's kind of aggregated over a number of years, but I, I saw a joke the other day that they're going to have a member of the royal family you know, go into the PSG club shop and buy a pen for $200 million and you know, that, that's them got their income for the Neymar deal. So, so I, I don't know. I don't know how they, they're adamant that they can sign him. And he's, the lad's a Parisian. He grew up in Paris. He he grew up a PSG fan. So whether there's something to be done there, I I still get the sense that he's too young. I think he's too young for Real Madrid. It's like the you see with the the Brazilian lad that Real Madrid have signed a, uh, a pre contract with. Yep. 16 years old and they're paying just short of 50 million for him. Odengard was another prime example of, of, of a kid that was really absolutely yeah. yeah that was you know and yeah. and everybody in the world could see what he was the mistake he was making but n- nobody could talk to him and he was he was courted by clubs that would he would have got game time at and he ended up yeah. there and it's and it's, it's a the terrible likes of Ajax were looking at him yeah you, you, I mean if Ajax are, are going for a young player I think any young player would be well advised to go there Kind of, kind of go to their system, get the first team football, get the exposure, get the tactical understanding, and then, and then you can kick on. But yeah, Odegaard, um, Vicinius Junior. So as it all comes down, I suppose you, you understand to an extent these these players get their heads turned by like the Real Madrid and Barcelona, because as you said, that's that's a pinnacle, isn't it? That's that's a pinnacle of world football. That's 
that's where you, you run out in that white shirt in front of the Bernabeu when it's packed with all the Champions League trophies in the in the club museum, and that's that's you made it as a football player. So, but but Lee, uh, uh, another another aspect. Sorry to interrupt you. It's, it's just it's no. a thing that I found out. It's only just recently in the last month that I found out. During like, do you remember during the nineties? Basically, Serie A was was the league to be in, and the best players were yeah. there. And, and yep. Real Madrid and Barcelona were 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 still big, but they weren't punching the weight they're punching today. That those yep. those Brazilian players, South American players, still would have rather have gone to Real Madrid and Barcelona than they would have to to, to the Italian giants. And as I say it was a conversation. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it, it was like a conversation I had here with, with one of the local guys. And they said, "No, no, no. Even at that time, Real Madrid and Barcelona are head and shoulders above." And I just find that, like at that time, especially Syria and some of the names that were that were there uh, in that league at that time, anybody who was anybody in world football played in Syria during that time. But again, yeah. ha- had Barcelona or Real Madrid come calling for a, for a player, you know, this is the Vinicius Junior deal, and and that has placed an immense amount of pressure on that kid. You know, they signed him yes. before he even had a professional debut, which he had uh, about four months ago. He's not really set the world on fire. Don't get, don't get me wrong. The talent is there. It will come. But I think the, the, the progress has been stunted by the weight on the shoulders of that 40 million euros. Yeah, and this is the thing. This player will go, and I, I think he, am I right in thinking that he has to wait until his 18th birthday before he can officially make the move to Europe? I think that's, that's part correct. Of the, yeah, that's correct. The rules that they have. So, so he's got two years sitting in in Brazilian football, developing under you know the, training the way they train, developing the way they develop players before he moves to Madrid. And, and multiple managers in those two years, like they've, they've just changed manager there, and how long he they've given the manager? Uh, I think it's a Colombian. I think has taken over at Flamengo. Okay. And foreigners don't do well here. They don't like foreigners, nope. so you can guarantee he's nope. against the wall before he even starts. And and especially that's especially flamenco. Yeah, and and that's that's what you're putting those kids into that environment of constantly changing, constant movement, and it's not good for them. Kids need sort of stability to to to, to get and and improve. Absolutely. So then, as we were saying, then you see the likes of Kylian Mbappe. Is is he well said? It's great that he's got the confidence to think that he can kind of go and make this move. But whether that's the best thing for his career remains to be seen. So, for for a club like Monaco to be able to retain the, this core of players, it kind of gives the younger players like Mbappe, like um, a couple of more the, the younger ones like Tielemans coming in. Um, again, he's going to come in. He's going to benefit immeasurably from playing beside a player like Giamatinho, who's played, you know, he's played top level international football. He's he's made numerous Champions League appearances and he's there to kind of help these young players settle, to help them develop. So it kind of mitigates a little bit of the the risk if you're able to... uh, Also, I mean, you touched upon yourself, Monaco play on top of a car park. Their stadium, their fan base, isn't really there. So the weight of expectation that these young players will face when they come into the Monaco first team, it's not as great as if you say a, a young player, for example, we're talking about Vincent Junior, when he makes his first team debut for Flamengo, I would imagine the expectations on his shoulders in front of that crowd would be absolutely massive. And you translate that across to Monaco, and there's not that many people watching. There's not a huge, you know, local. A lot of the, the Monaco players last season said it was great. They could walk around Monaco and go for a meal and everything else. And nobody bothered them, despite the fact that they were they were kind of in the international spotlight. When they were in Monaco, nobody really bothered. So it kind of is a good place for young players to come in and develop. And I think that mitigates a little bit the risk that they have when they're taking in these kids and they're giving them a chance at first-team football. 
Well, listen, let, let's go from, from the very sensible model to the completely insane model uh, in the form of Manchester City. <laughs> um, you, you know, it, it's City are the, they're, they are buying young players, but I feel, you know, I could use Marlis Moreno as an example uh, of why it's to their detriment. Um, you know, he, he, he's going into his second season now away from his parent club. You have a, a manager yep. there, the, 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 the stature of Pep Guardiola. You'd want that kid in that system as soon as, 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 soon as possible. And you, you know, they picked him up for four and a half million euro, which was to me last season, the yep. bargain of the window. And he, you know, he, he got very, very little t- playing time in Spain. But City just seem to have this policy, the complete opposite of the of the Monaco. It's there's no there doesn't seem to be rhyme and reason. If you're if you're if you're a name, if you're valuable, we'll pay big money for you. You'll be a name, you'll sell lots of shirts, and there's the whole marketing thing attached to it. And yeah. it just seems like Manchester City spend money for the sake of spending money. The same way as maybe Chelsea did as well. You know, look at look at the number of players they have out on loan and excellent players as yeah. well. That are never going to get near their first team, but they're just buying. But I don't feel that City are in that same mold. I, I don't think that they're buying, you know, to, to for a sell on profit the way Chelsea have have evolved into. They're still at the the, the Abramovich early years. Just let's throw billions at it. Yep, it's strange to watch a little bit. I mean, if you if you take it in, you know, if you take this transfer window just as a as a snapshot, as it were, and you see the deals that they've made. A lot of the transfers they made this summer have been sensible. They they they're taking down the average age of their squad. They're signing players that are coming into their peak, and they're signing players that can make an impact at first team level. All of that is great, but then you're absolutely right to point out the Marlos Moreno transfer. Um, I obviously you've seen far more of him playing in a, a live set than I have. I've I've watched his clips on on Y Scout and things like that, and I'm aware of the player and aware of his talent. I think it was actually one of one of the pods in WFI that at first alerted me to him last season, and I, I made sure that I went out and watched some of the Libertadores matches that he was a part of, and he, he was just absolutely on fire. And it's strange; it's a strange parallel between the way that they've treated Marlos Moreno and the way that they've they've treated Gabi Jesus, because if you take both players side by side when they were signed, I don't think that you could have seen a huge amount of difference in talent levels. We were asked a question on the South American Football Show. Um, oh, you know, before Gabby Gall moved, uh, before Gabby Jesus moved, before Moreno moved, and we were asked to, you know, to put them in order uh, of, okay. of of talent. And at that time, yep. it was Adam Brown, uh, Austin Miller, and myself, and we put Gabby Gall at number one. We put Marlis Moreno at number two, and we put Gabby Jesus at number three. And in the space of six go. months. Those have been just turned in. Gabby Gold's gone. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, Marius yeah. Moreno may as well be gone for all the game time he's got, and and such an exciting yep. talent. And and it just it yep. just shows you at that age, you know, you can look brilliant one minute, but somebody can just come up in the rails. Gabby Jesus went through a, a period of six months where he went from a boy to a man, and and the the uh-huh. form and and the, the the ability of the kid just seemed to increase by three hundred percent overnight. Yeah. Completely agree, and you look at him now, and there's there's no kind of comparison between the two of them. Gabriel Jesus is going to be part of the first team squad. I, I think he's going to be part of Pep Guardiola's. I think he's number one, honestly. I think he's in front of Aguero. I do. Uh, yeah, I, I think this preseason, from what I've seen, they're kind of trying to play both. It's a strange system that City have set up with in the first couple of games I've seen them play. Obviously, it's preseason football, and I try to stay away from it as much as I can because so we're City pushing um, Gabby Gabby Jesus wide. Briefly, there, there was a period that he was going out wide. There was a period that Aguero was dropping deeper. So Gabby Jesus was playing up top, and then they had Aguero sitting in behind. 
which I think is an interesting prospect as Aguero gets a little bit older. I think he's Aguero's very much a striker. I mean, I love Aguero. I've loved him for a long, long time since he was at Atletico Madrid when I first kind of saw him play properly. And I think it's always his explosive ability that, that kind of sets him apart, that ability to get that little yard to the left or the right before you get the shot off. And as you get older, you lose that. I think that's why we might see him moving deeper. We might see him playing a secondary role to Gabriel Jesus. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that we, we may well we 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 may well see him come in, but it's it's crazy when you look at when you think about what they've done over the past seasons. When now that Pep Guardiola has come in, obviously everybody last season when he started, everybody pointed at the fullbacks. Everybody said that Gioclici, Kolarov, Sanya, these weren't players that would fit Guardiola's system, and and obviously that that turned out to be the case. But why it's taken twelve months for for that rotation? then to be rotated out and new fullbacks to come in I don't know so he signed really well for this window for the first team but there's a lot of question marks coming over over how he's going to develop players you look at how on their American tour I don't know if you saw it but they've got a young English lad I think he's from Stockport so very local to Manchester a young lad called Phil Foden who made his kind of first team appearance in one of these pre-season games and he absolutely tore the opposition apart uh, I've I've gone back and watched this footage a few times because it's rare to see a young English player with this kind of ability. He he played very much like a Spanish player or a Brazilian player, that kind of ability to manipulate the ball and manipulate space. And he was using his body, he's fainting left, fainting right, and sending opponents all over the place before before showing that he can pick a pass and have a shot as well. So really exciting young talent, but. How's he going to get in the team? He's an attacking midfielder. They've got Kevin De Bruyne. They've got David Silva. They've got Bernardo Silva. They've got Leroy Sané. They've got Raheem Sterling. All kind of vying for those two or three spaces in, in the advanced midfield role. So there are young players at City that there's a few of them who are really interesting and quite exciting. But whether they ever get a game, whether how much of that do you attribute to Pep Guardiola, who obviously had this reputation at Barcelona as being the, the developer of talent I, I, a coach who gave chances to young players. and All gone out the window really hasn't it? it, it certainly his first season as evidence has yeah. gone. And at Bayern Munich as well part of that is down to I think the Bayern Munich's youth system isn't quite what it once was but you, you look at how many young players he kind of promoted there. There was Joshua Kimmich who they signed from another German club but Obviously, Guardiola is, was hugely influential in kind of getting him into the team and, and coaching him up to the point that he is now. And then, I guess you have like say Kingsley Coman, who they signed on loan. He's now in a permanent deal to Bayern Munich. He's the young French wide attacker who Guardiola quite liked and he blurred him quite a few games. But other than those two, you kind of struggle. You kind of struggle to and see and him take brings back to, to, to Marlis Moreno again, Lee, who is an exceptional... Yeah. T- you would think... That Pep Guardiola, he'd be the type of player that Pep would say, "This is what I, I want. I want to instill my 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 philosophies in this kid here at Manchester yep. City, not afar in Spain." Uh, you know that. That's I what I thought. That, that's the one that sort of melts my head with with the Marlos Moreno thing, and I, I'm like a broken record with it because I just cannot get given. Guardiola's track record of development. Why he didn't? Why he didn't see that? Maybe he didn't want the player. Lee, is that a possibility? It's, it is a possibility. Um, I can't for the life of me see why. <laughs> um, I think that I suppose you've got to question how much of it is down to Moreno himself. Has he been able to go into a 
an environment like Manchester, an environment like the Manchester City first team squad and, and kind of training routine, is he be able to go into that and kind of handle himself? I mean, you made the comment yourself about Gabriel Jesus turning into a man in six months and kind of maturing. Is it possible that Marlos Medino hasn't? Is it possible that he's still kind of struggling to come to terms with European football? In which case, another year in Spain where the culture and where the environment is a lot more in common with what we had back home in Colombia, just in terms of language more than anything else, I think it may be that he's struggling to acclimatise because I, I, I can't see why it would be talent because Marlos Medino has, I think, all the talent in the world to, to go on and become a top international footballer. So it, it may be that he's taken a little while, but even then you would think that a coach like Guardiola could take him in and even if you just have him in the development squad and working individually with Guardiola day in, day out, you, you'd hope that he'd be able to improve and kind of find his feet there. Well, here here's one for you. You know, they've signed Bernardo Silva. And where do you see, or how do you see, Guardiola fitting him into to, to that team and system? Uh, Bernardo Silva is kind of on that precipice of going from a very, very good player to a world-class player. I think he's that good. Um, a couple of years ago, he he was the, the standout young player. I think it was the World Under-20 Championships. He, he signed, he played there, and he was absolutely majestic for Portugal. And that kind of led to the move to Monaco and the move to French football. And, and he's kicked on again there. He's kicked on to another level. I think that he's been signed in part because he is very much a, a Pep Guardiola player. It's interesting. He, he made the comment. There, there was a comment a few years ago when, when Guardiola was at Barcelona and he's talked about Andres Iniesta. And he said that Iniesta you know, doesn't have piercings. He doesn't have tattoos. He doesn't go out partying. He just plays football and he plays football very, very well. And when Bernardo Silva signed, Guardiola said the same thing about him. He doesn't have tattoos. He doesn't have, you know, the lifestyle. He's just, he's a very, very intelligent footballer. And I think he's he's a kind of player that, that Guardiola loves, that, that kind of player who can drift in between lines and find space and receive the ball and move the ball, create chances. And I think that going forward this season, we may not see the best of Bernardo Silva, but I think he's been signed more as a replacement to David Silva going forward. Now that David Silva's kicked on, I think he's into his thirties now, or he's just about to hit thirty. I can't remember. Can't remember his age off the top of my my head. I think that we're going to see David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, and Bernardo Silva kind of competing for those two central roles. The way that Manchester City play and the Guardiola, they'll have the the holding midfielder, and they'll almost play with two number tens in central midfield. So, as opposed to having you know a box box midfielder. Uh, a passer in there that they've got two players who can go forward and support attack in the, the number 10 slot that'll play that they'll start off deeper in the central midfield and move up from there so I think we're going to see quite a lot of rotation I don't think don't think we're going to see him play wide as we did for Monaco he played wide right quite a lot for Monaco but I think that like Sasani Sterling I think that's far and away the, the, the model of young wide players that Guardiola prefers, players that stretch the width of the field and have excessive pace with Bernardo Silva as more of a thinker than a than a fast, you know, a pacey player. So I think that we'll see him kind of spell in for De Bruyne and for Silva to start with. But going forwards towards the end of the season and certainly next season, I think he will be in there as one of the key players for City. And, you know, you talked about their fullbacks, which, you know, has been addressed. There, to me, there was always a problem in central defence as well. You know, Vincent Company's 
that looks a shadow of the player he was. He's had long injuries yep. and so on. Is it time you think for Pep to dip into the market for 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 a centre back? You know, Stones had. Don't get me wrong. I, I think John Stones will eventually be a, a good player, but he's just not there at the minute. Does he need to go in and and get some stability there for that back four? I think so. I, I think that he's he's kind of hedging his bets at the moment, and the fact that they're still hoping that Vincent Company can play thirty games this season. And as you said, I I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that his his injuries have taken their toll psychologically as well as physically, and I don't think he's even if he does manage to play twenty odd games, he's he's not the same defender as he was three four seasons ago when he was possibly one of the best in the world for a period. John Stones, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's the kind of defender that I absolutely love. I love a defender a bit like Yul Matip for for your Liverpool side. He's kind of confident coming out with the ball so he can dribble up the halfway line, get the, the opposition to trigger on to press him before he passes beyond them. I think that's an important skill for a defender to have. But the main criticism is that you always you also have to be able to defend. And that's kind of the question mark that's hanging above John Stone's head. And whether Nicholas Otamendi has the quality to play there for Manchester City again this season. I'm not entirely sure. I yeah. strongly on that. There you one. go. So but the, the issue that they really have is that there aren't a lot of centre-backs available at the moment. You look at the likes of Bayern Munich got in really early to sign Nicolas Schule from Hoffenheim. From last, That deal was done last season. He's now with Bayern Munich. He was one of the one of the centre-backs that I was certainly tracking in, in European football. I think he's got the, the whole package. And then you look at Leonardo Bonucci, who left Juventus and went to Milan. I think that if the deal was possible, I think Guardiola would have snapped Juventus' hand off and I think he, they would quite happily pay double what AC Milan ended up paying so so that's two two centre-backs that I think would have been you know would have fit the bill there so I guess the question is whether whether Pep Guardiola thinks that Virgil van Dijk at Southampton is worth the, the money that's being quoted for him and there's been some some Dubai over whether Guardiola rates Van Dijk highly enough to go He's out and to sign Liverpool, the not, not even worth talking about. Lee. That, that, that's done. Forget about it. <laughs> I, I think I, if if I was going to put a bet on tomorrow, Dave, I think my money would be on him going to Liverpool. To be honest, but that that is the one centre back I think who is readily available. Who's I mean, he's already put in a transfer request. He, he's made it clear that he's, he wanted to leave for a bigger challenge. The common knowledge is that he's. He's spoken to Klopp at some point and been very impressed by Klopp. He wants to play for Klopp. So, so whether there is a deal to be done there for Manchester City, I think that is the one player who they could go out and get. But otherwise, you're kind of putting a lot of pressure on on John Stones and on a young Brazilian goalkeeper as well who have gone out and signed this season. And they're, they're always ropey to begin with. <laughs> well, Brazilian goalkeepers never, never fill you full of confidence, to be honest with you. It's... it's Claudio Tafarel played for Parma. Never really trusted a Brazilian goalkeeper, but there you go. He, he was excellent for Benfica last season. I think he was he was comfortably one of Benfica's best players last season, and that's for a goalkeeper. So I do think he'll be good, but whether you can kind of throw him into the Premiership at the start of the season with with Nicolas Otamendi or a half at Vincent Company ahead of him. I think you're taking a huge risk. Well, here I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a tangent here because it's a question that I, that I really want to ask you. And you know, you're talking about centre backs there, and the fact that there's not very many of them that are that good. Never mind available. Is there something that has changed? Is it just a cycle of football? Do you feel the you know that, that there's such a lack of real, real good centre backs? It used to be it was never a problem. I, like all my life growing up, there was always really, really solid guys. 
is it is it the way they're being coached these days? The modern game has changed the defensive uh, responsibilities, the way they're they're trained. Uh, maybe maybe you know the rules of the game have changed. You can't be as physical. Um, it's all been diluted. Has the, what what do you think is the, the problem that we, we can go out and buy forward players, midfield players by the dozen, but a good centre back? Rare find. Yep. I, th- I think it's a combination of all everything that you just said. To be honest with you, it's been something that's been happening for a little while. I mean, you don't have to go back that far, and you had the likes of who Berezi, AC Milan, Maldini, AC Milan, even Foster John Carter. Terry in his heyday. Foster <laughs> Carter, he was he was excellent. Even Carlos Puyol at Barcelona, that that was a kind of model of a defender. Well, he called and, Henry yeah. in the Premier League, well, a immense defender, well, never got half the credit he deserved. But very close to my hometown, he's from as well. So, uh, as you say, I mean, being, being Scottish, you'd be able to kind of open your front door and throw an apple at the door. You'd probably hit a centre half walking down the street, but it's just not the case anymore. And I think I think a large part of that is it's it's kind of attributable to to the way that modern football has gone. So you, you spoke about the change of the rules. So you, you you can no longer tackle as hard as you used to be able to. You can no longer get away with what you used to be able to. The offside rule, the back pass rule, all of these things have kind of contributed to to changing the profile of a central defender. Now you're looking at central defenders who can, I mean, the perfect central defender has the pace to play a high line. He's the ability to pass a ball. He's he's able to to mark properly and to recover his position quickly through short bursts to acceleration. And now that's not something that really fits the big physical, strong, dominant centre-half that we used to see. So I think that, that a large part of the problem lies in the youth academies, especially in Britain. It's a shame we didn't touch on this the last time we were we were on here with Dan, Dan Fieldson. I think he'd have yeah, quite an opinion on, on this. With his, yeah, uh, I might actually ask him offline and see, see what his answer is. But I think that the way that the youth academies are set up now, it's very much orientated towards ball possession and ball ball circulation, attacking skills, one-on-one skills. And while, while you're doing one-on-one skills now, I coach myself, I coach grassroots, very lowest level, it's my kids' team, so I'm happy to be involved and I love it. But when I'm coaching them doing one-on-one, and it's one-on-one skills, you know, here's your skill to go past a player, I'm also coaching the defensive side of it as well. You can't just all the time be thinking about the attacking side. You've got to start teaching these kids at an early age about how to use their bodies, how to position themselves, how to kind of move to be a defender. And that just doesn't happen, I don't think, in youth academies. I think the focus is too much on we need to produce a team of Javis, Iniesta's, Lionel Messi's, which would be absolutely great if, if Scottish football or British football could, could produce these players and Phil Foden at Manchester City, who I touched upon, that is the closest I've seen an English player get to kind of that style of player so maybe that is working to an extent but we're losing out at the other end we're losing out in terms of centre-halves we're, we're losing out in terms of defensive players who have that I think to be a really top-class centre-half you have to love defending and it's not just about you know the the pre-din defender who wants to get the ball and is stride forward with the ball at the opposition half it's it's the defender who's willing to put their face in the way of the ball and who's willing to to put their body in the way even though they know it's going to hurt that's the player that we're missing out on now in modern football and and really you look around the 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 markets right now for for who's available and there isn't an awful lot out there certainly you look at like Everton signing Michael Keane 
Would that have been one that, that perhaps Pep Guardiola could have looked at potentially? A young English defender, but again, I don't think Michael Keane has the ability on the ball that Guardiola looks for. So I think that more just than any other team looking for a centre half, I think that Guardiola's specific tactical requirements are such that it's very difficult for him to shop anywhere other than the top level. So, so whether he could do anything there, I really don't think so. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, but I was going to ask you, do you, do you feel that uh, the Guardiola brand has been tarnished? You know, obviously, considered a top-class coach and was always up for, for development of, of, of youth. And, you know, you mentioned the Bayern experiment. He's now at Manchester City. We're shopping at the top end of the market. Development seems to be put to the wayside. Is this a black mark on, on the, the Guardiola portfolio? It's difficult. I mean, I'll, I'll come right and say Pep Guardiola, I think, is still the, the best coach in world football. And I would agree Absolutely. 100% with you on that, but it's just yeah, devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> I Absolutely. I, I get exactly where you're coming from. I mean, I think to an extent, it's not quite, you turn around and say that that he's got a black mark. I wouldn't go that far. I, w- I would say that I would say last season was was perhaps a bit of an eye opener for Guardiola. I think it's all very well to to go from likes of Spanish football to German football, coming into English football. I think the physicality kind of shocked him a little bit, and the way that certain teams set up to to play certain ways shocked him a little bit. So I think going at the second season, we'll, we'll see him be a lot better. But I think what we really need to see, and he's talked before about the project, I think, Guardiola. It's, I love the, the, the books, the Pep Confidential books. There's been two so far by Marty Perrino, and I absolutely love those because you get an insight into the man and just listening to talk at press conferences. He's very, very impressive when you hear him speak, and he always speaks about projects. You know, He doesn't speak about teams or clubs. It's always the project. So the Manchester City project, we've got a project, we're working towards our project. So you kind of expect him to to be able to turn around at the end of this and be able to show something for it. And I think that if you're only buying players at the top end of the market, that becomes more difficult to do. So whether we can see Phil Foden, uh, Brahim Diaz, who's a Spanish attacking midfielder, very much in the David Silva kind of mould, He's another who's been who's been um, touted for first team football this season, and they, they've got the the young English winger Jadon Sancho, Jadon Sancho as well, who's another who's absolutely you know tipped to be top level. If perhaps his attitude is apparently lacking a little bit at the moment, so there are three young players who they they took with them. They took two of them with them. Sancho didn't go on the tour to the United States, which I think is a, a large part in the way that his attitude has developed recently. He seems to be agitating for a move because he's not happy at the club. But Diaz and, and Foden both went with him and both impressed on the tour in pre-season. So I think whether we see them kind of blooded in, I think that would go a long way to to shoring up Guardiola's reputation as, as a coach who kind of has it all. But I think the way that I watch the game, certainly with, uh, a, through a tactical lens, I'm, I'm always looking at different different systems and things like that. And there's nobody who can hold the torch to Guardiola, I think, in world football. I think when all said and done, he'll still go down as one of the greatest coaches that we've ever seen. It'll just be interesting to see whether he can make his mark in English football in Manchester City. 